First Peter 3, verse 13. And who is he that will harm you if ye be followers of that which is good? But and if ye suffer for righteousness sake, happy are ye. And be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Having a good conscience that whereas they speak evil of you as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. For it is better, if the will of God be so, that you suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. For Christ also has once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit, by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison, which sometimes were disobedient when once the long suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was a preparing, wherein a few, that is eight souls, were saved by water. The like figure whereunto even baptism does also now save us, not the putting away the, fle the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. For as much then as Christ has suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. For he that has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lusts of men, but to the will of God. For the time past of our life may suffice to have wrought the will of the Gentiles, when we walked in lasciviousness, lusts, excess of wine, revelings, banquetings, and abominable idolatries, wherein they think it strange that you run not with them to the same excess of riot, speaking evil of you, who shall give an account to him that is ready to judge the quick and the dead. For this cause was the gospel preached also to them that are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the spirit. But the end of all things is at hand. Be ye therefore sober and watch unto prayer. And above all things have fervent love among yourselves. For love shall cover the multitude of sins. Use hospitality one to another without grudging. As every man has received the gift, even so minister the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. If any man minister, let him do it as of the ability which God gives, that God in all things might be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom be, pra be praise and dominion forever and ever. Amen. <clears throat> now, um, sorry, I thought I had an internet problem there. Um, I want to consider the uh, passage before us this evening uh, under five headings, five headings that describe how we are to respond to Peter's teaching. Uh, first of all, from verses 13 to 14, we shall think uh, how Peter is uh, asking us to suffer happily, to suffer happily. And then from verses uh, 15 to 17, uh, we shall think about how it would have us behave humbly. And then from verses 18 to 22, we shall think of, about how he wishes for us to think holistically. It just basically means uh, think, think in terms of the big picture. Um, and then uh, from verses 1 to 6 of chapter 4, uh, the, the heading there would be change intentionally. And then from verses 7 to 11, uh, give graciously or give liberally. So first of all, then, uh, Peter calls us to suffer happily, to behave humbly, to think holistically, to change chapter four intentionally and to give graciously. Um, Peter has been leading up to this most important point in the epistle. You remember he started out by uh, encouraging the saints that they, that, about their identity 
He doesn't just dive straight in here in his epistle to these suffering saints with uh, with the the hard truth that they 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 really were called to suffer. He doesn't just dive straight in there. In the first section, we saw uh, that he reminds them about their identity. And he tells them that you are, verse uh, two of chapter one, you are elect. You are, chapter two, a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, uh, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God. And so in order to uh, get these believers where he needs them to be spiritually uh, and and not just spiritually, but pastorally in every respect, he, he reminds them about their identity. And then before he will get to the nub of it, the things here in the section this evening and tell them, look, you, you are called to suffer. Uh, he will will tell them that what this looks like, given given that you are this, given that your identity is characterized by these things. Well, then one of the things that which should should mark you is is submission. And it's only after he's dealt with that that he comes to uh, verse eight. You see uh, in chapter three, verse eight, he says, finally, and he summarizes everything that he's been saying thus far. And then uh, he says in verse 13, and who is he that will harm you? So now he's going to come right to the crooks of things. And, and he's going to say this, that you are called to suffer. And we might think then of these first two verses that Peter calls them to suffer happily, suffer happily. Verse 13, and who is he that will harm you if he be followers of that which is good? Uh, what possible harm could come to these believers in view of God's sovereign care over them? You remember in Acts chapter 5, um, when the apostles were put in prison, it says that they laid their hands on the apostles and put them in the common prison. And um, I'm sure when Peter wrote these, these words here in chapter three, he must have been thinking back to those days because the very next verse in chapter five of Acts, verse 19, it says, but the angel of the Lord by night opened the prison doors. And who is he that will harm you if you be followers of that which is good? And the very next, uh, in, in verse 33 of chapter 5 of Acts, you remember they, they, they found them out of the prison, they rounded them up again, and they were, they were taking counsel to slay them. And one of their very own, Gamaliel, stood up. One of the uh, religious elite, he stood up and he said, you be very careful uh, what you're doing here. If, you be, if these be followers of good, he didn't actually say that, he, he said, if, if, these, if this is all of God, then you you had better not get involved you better not make any interventions you better you better spare them and so on that occasion they were spared death uh, by one of the one of the enemy if you like and so peter says who is he that will harm you if you are followers of good but then he says in verse 14 but and if he suffer for righteousness sake now this expression suffering for righteousness sake is very very important it's going to be very important as we move forward this idea of suffering for, for living the right way, for doing the right thing. And that righteousness is not defined by you or me. It's defined by God. So it's basically living God's way. And he's already been telling us what God's way looks like. It looks like submission in the workplace. It looks like submission in the home to one another. And he says uh, in verse 8, be ye all of one mind, having compassion one of another. And so suffering for doing these things, suffering for righteousness sake, for living the life that God would want you to live, he says, and if ye suffer. And you'll remember in chapter five of Acts when the, the council agreed with Gamaliel. Nevertheless, it says in verse 41, and they departed from the presence of the council rejoicing, rejoicing that they were counted worthy look what peter says here in verse 14 he says but and if you suffer righteousness sake happy are you it's a blessing this is a bit uh sermon on the mount kind of idea isn't it happy are you if you suffer for righteousness sake 
and be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. This was exactly the reaction of these uh, disciples here in the early days of the church. They rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name, and they ceased not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. But and if ye suffer for righteousness sake. This wasn't stoicism, was it? This, 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 this rejoicing wasn't sort of a, a stiff upper lip. What caused the harm that these men uh, experienced as they were beaten before they were left to, to, to go? What caused the harm to bounce off these men and rescue them from developing a, a sort of victim complex? Well, we find what, what it was in the next verse. It was association with Christ. And we come to our next little section over which we have written, behave humbly. Suffer happily, but behave humbly. Where does the humbling start? Does the humbling start be before our fellow men in the world, that we live a humble life before them? The humbling starts in the heart. Verse 15, behave humbly, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Here's another key. If we want to, if, if I want to live this life, this, this life of righteousness and potentially suffer for it. I'll only really be able to do that if I sanctify the Lord God in my heart. What does that look like? What does it mean to sanctify the Lord God in the heart? This is a, a really important point. If my heart condition is not right, then I won't be able to react to suffering in the right way. I won't be able to respond to uh, reviling in the right way. I won't really have uh, any of the underlying capacity in my heart to do anything that we've already read of in chapter two and the first part of chapter three. You know, it's really very, it's really very simple in theory. Sanctifying the Lord in our hearts is to give God his, his rightful place in our heart. And the key to being fearless, as these men were, the key to being ready to give an answer, which is what we will read of shortly, and the key to being able to do that with meekness and with fear is that God has the right place in my heart. You might say, well, what does that look like, Lloyd, on, on a daily basis? It sounds wonderful. It almost sounds simple. But what does that look like? Well, you'll hear this in many, this is for those young people really on the, uh, session this evening you'll hear this all the time in meetings you know giving god his rightful place in your heart it looks like reading your bible every day it looks like praying every day and if you haven't read your bible today apart from perhaps just to solve your conscience and if you haven't prayed today well, then you're probably in a large group of people on the session, at least not today, but in the past, we've all been there at one point or another. You probably haven't given God the right place in your heart. And we wonder why we are fearful and we wonder why we don't have answers. And we wonder why we're not ready. And we wonder when we think we're ready, but we give an answer with pride and arrogance. Why that is? It's because I haven't sanctified the Lord in my heart sanctifying the Lord God in your heart. She's quoting here from the Old Testament, very interesting to read uh, Isaiah 8, really, and see some of the background to that. Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Give God his rightful place. He must have the preeminence. He must increase, I must decrease. And I won't be able to react properly. I won't be able to suffer happily if I'm not behaving humbly in my heart. And be ready, he says, to give an answer. Be ready. If I am giving God the rightful place in my heart and I'm reading my Bible and I'm praying, which are the two good uh, litmus checks, I suppose, of, of whether we are giving God the rightful place in my heart. And if I'm responding to the word of God, that would be the next step. So all one, well, well, it's easy for us to, to tick a box and say, well, I read my Bible today, but 
Am I reacting to it? Am I responding to it in a positive way? If I am, then I will be ready. I, I will be ready. I, I will have the word of God from that morning when I come across that situation at work or at school or at college. I will have scripture already in my heart. I will be ready. If I'm living for today, then I probably won't be ready. But if I'm living for glory, as we're going to see shortly, then I will. He says, be ready, always, be ready, always. What a, what a standard Peter is calling us to, be ready, always. Peter always had an answer, didn't he? But look what he says, ready to give an answer to every man that asks you a reason of the hope. Now, this idea here of giving an answer uh, with, with a reason, um, this is where the, the modern uh, contemporary sort of field of, of giving a defense. Uh, you'll sometimes, if you go to a bookshop or a, um, if you go on to, to the internet, you might find some apologetics, apologetics. And um, they're not making an apology for, for uh, Christianity in the normal sense of an apology. They're not saying we're sorry, we're Christians. They're making a defense, an apologetic. And Peter's saying we need to be ready to give a defense, a reason, a reason uh, of the hope. And there's a lot that good can be said uh, looking out there on the Internet, going into a bookshop, if there are such things nowadays. And uh, and. Um, sort of uh, swatting up on on how you can defend the Christian faith. But it can get very philosophical. And let's just remind ourselves as we read this verse here that these believers, for them, it wasn't an, a philosophical thing. It wasn't an academic thing. Their answer, that which they were giving back to the people that were asking them a reason of the hope that was within them, wasn't going to really be a, a, a rhetorical conversation, a, a conversation that was going to be one on the grounds of rhetoric, I mean. It was going to be one on the grounds of the way that they were suffering happily. And the way that they were submitting to their masters. And so really, we can't read, I think, the, the, uh, the modern massive field of apologetics necessarily really into this verse because the two things are so far apart. These believers were suffering. They were persecuted. They were physically and verbally abused. And it's in that context that Peter says, be ready. Don't be fearful, be ready. Now, of course, we can apply it and we should be ready to give an answer. And sometimes it's useful to untangle somebody's irrational uh, philosophy and irrational thinking and just show them that that doesn't make sense. But Christianity, Christianity does actually make sense. But then you lead them to the cross and then all the all the rationality really goes out the window. Because Christ on the cross dying for a man has to be accepted by faith it doesn't make sense to a man he wants to atone for his own sins if he accepts the fact that he's a sinner and so there comes a point where we have to leave that type of apologetic to one side and engage in just heralding the truth the platform for these believers was not an academic one <clears throat> it was one of suffering but he says here Give a, give a reason of the hope. And we're going to get to this uh, in our passage this evening. He wants them to give a reason of the hope. That coming glory, that coming uh, uh, day uh, that he spoke of in chapter one, the honour and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Give them a reason for that. And give them a reason for why that affects the way that you are behaving to me now. Why do you keep uh, why do you keep submitting to me when I when I speak unkindly to you? Why do you not revile again? Why is that? And you tell them you give them a reason for your hope. But do it, he says, at the end of verse 15, with meekness and fear. You see, if it is that I have sanctified the Lord God in my heart and I've humbled my heart and I've got God in my God in his right, rightful place in my heart, then I can be humble with men as well. I well remember a case where 
I had a doorstep conversation, uh, having seen off um, some representatives of the Watchtower. And my impression of the conversation was that I had won the argument. But moments later, my conscience got the better of me. And I, I realized, well, I, I thought I had won the argument on the grounds of superior grasp of the text of scripture. But my conscience told me that I actually lost the argument on the grounds of an inferior attitude. I well remember that. I will never forget that conversation. That, that, that moment where I was able to give an answer of a reason of the hope that I had within me. And I, I blew it. Now, God may bless the, the, the reading uh, and the, the, the presentation of his word, but there was nothing in my argument. There was nothing in my rhetoric that was compelling at all. I was arrogant. And I would suggest that I hadn't sanctified the Lord God in my heart. I wasn't giving God his rightful place in my heart. And so I wasn't able to be humble before men either. Peter says, behave humbly. Verse 16, having a good conscience. Be able to answer your conscience in such a way as to say that I, I didn't take this opportunity to, to get back at my master. You see, we have to keep it in its context. These people were, were being persecuted uh, quite likely by unbelievers, unlikely, I, I think, by fellow believers, uh, more likely unbelievers. And they had to have, a, they had to have a, a good conscience. And they would have if they had given a reason with meekness and fear. That whereas they speak evil of you as of evildoers, they may be ashamed. We come back to this idea uh, in chapter four, this idea that, that as it is that we give a, a, a reason with meekness and fear, that it just leaves them perplexed. It leaves them wondering. Remember the, um, remember the, the answer, the defense that Paul and Silas gave uh, in the prison. They sang and they prayed. What, a, what an answer. They weren't actually asked to give that answer, but they, they gave it anyway. They were suffering in the prison. They'd been beaten, you remember, uh, illegally. And they were in that prison and they were singing and they were praying. And then, and then the, the request did come. What must I do to be saved? And the request came because it didn't make sense that Paul and Silas were so happy, were so, were so fearless and were so content to stay in the prison. They could have escaped, but they had a clear conscience. They didn't take the opportunity to escape. And they, no doubt the, the Philippian jailer was ashamed. And that shame uh, graciously was used by God to bring him to a point of realizing his own need of Christ as Savior. Shame, mind you, fell upon the magistrates who had beaten them and put them in prison. But shame there didn't lead to salvation. So it won't always lead to salvation but suffering gave them a platform suffering gave them a platform you know as we've been going through peter's epistle i hope you've seen this that suffering has a point to it in chapter one uh, peter speaks about manifold temptations what's the point there well it brings honor and glory to god in the future in chapter two they're suffering in the workplace what's the point there well it brings uh, pleasure to God in the present and they're suffering here again and they're still expected to give an answer with meekness and fear and the point is it brings our hope to the attention of men and women also now in the present there's suffering as well uh, at the end suffering from the devil's opposition and we will see there in chapter five the point of it there is a point to suffering it's not like God just uh, enjoys making us suffer there is a point to it Glory in the future, pleasure uh, in the present to God, uh, a platform for testimony. And there is always a point to suffering, although it might not seem that way. Verse 17, for it is better if the will of God be so that ye suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. Why? Why, why, Peter, why is it better if the will of God, how, how can that be better? How can it be the will of God for us to suffer for well-doing? Well, he's going to tell us in this next verse. We come now to our 
next section, which is think holistically. It's better if the will of God be so that you suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing because Christ has already suffered for, the, for the, the, the wrongdoing. And so Peter doesn't want these believers suffering for wrongdoing, suffering because they've spoken out uh, in this conversation here, uh, not with meekness and fear, but with arrogance and pride. No, he doesn't, doesn't want them to be suffering for wrongdoing because Christ uh, Christ also has once suffered for sins. Christ has suffered for sins. Christ has suffered for wrongdoing. So if you're going to suffer at all, says Peter, suffer for right doing. Suffer, verse uh, 14, for righteousness sake. Now, what does it mean to think holistically? What does it mean to think holistically? Well, really, it's about seeing the big picture. Seeing the big picture. If I was... Um, if I was to invite you to a, a concert, uh, maybe a piano concerto of, of Beethoven or something, um, well, some of you would run away uh, just at the mention of Beethoven, but let's imagine I persuade you to come to a concert where we listen to Beethoven. And we, we enter the concert theatre and the music is in progress and um, the conductor beckons to us and, and, uh, and uh, well, let's just imagine it's Beethoven and he's conducting his, his piano concerto and we he invites us up into the stage. He invites us into the orchestra. And this is a very interesting vantage point for us because we don't normally get to hear music like this. And uh, he gets us to, to sit by the violins and we hear the, the violins with their sonorous sound. And then he gets us to uh, move to the piano uh, that, uh, as that is played by the pianist. And then we move round to the percussion uh, instruments and then we move round to the, 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 the wind instruments and the brass instruments and we hear a French horn player playing a note a little bit, a uh, little bit out of tune. We're that close to the music, we can hear some of the, some of the, uh, the things that are going wrong in the orchestra here, uh, which we wouldn't normally hear. And it's a very interesting vantage point. But Beethoven, he's the conductor now, he says to us, come, come stand with me on, on, on my stage, on my platform. And we stand with Beethoven on this platform as he's conducting his uh, piano concerto. And we notice now that we get a different vantage point. This is a different sound that we're hearing. Um, it's a very different um, uh, overall impact. We, can, we don't really hear the wrinkles uh, that we heard when we were in the orchestra. Uh, we hear a, a, more, uh, a more symphony of sound. Everything seems to be a little bit more balanced. But Beethoven says to us, this is not where the music that I am conducting is intended to be heard from go out into the stalls. And so we go out in this concert theater, we go out into the stalls, and now we hear a different kind of music. This is the concerto as Beethoven intended it, not now in the orchestra with that vantage point or from his position, but now we can hear the full sound as it comes uh, through uh, the, the concert theater. We can hear the, the piece of music as as Beethoven intended, as the conductor, the composer intended. And then finally, finally, we, we realize that there is one better place to be, one better vantage point than this. If you go to any performance, you will notice that the, at the sides um, of, of the uh, concert theater and at the very rear, there is a balcony. And if we sit in the balcony, now, not only do we get the music as the conductor and the composer intended, this vantage point uh, allows us to enjoy the acoustic effects of this, of the concert theater as the music, the sound bounces off the walls and it, it climaxes in this wonderful symphony of sound. And what's more, we can even watch the audience reaction. We, it's a piece of live music. We're seeing the whole thing unfold in front of us. And, we're getting this vantage point because we're in the balcony. Now that is what thinking holistically means. Part of the labor and the toil of Christian life is to live in the present, in the orchestra, through the lens of eternity in the balcony. Jonathan Edwards, who was a very prominent uh, 18th century preacher of the gospel, he, he said this once, God, stamp eternity on my eyeballs. 
stamp eternity on my eyeballs. Now we are called to live in the orchestra, so to speak. That is where these believers were suffering, right in the, in the front lines, in the trenches. But what Peter is gonna do now is, is say this, that you need to keep the big picture in mind. You need to think holistically. You need to see how all the different moving parts of your salvation are seen by God as a holistic picture, as a big picture. And if you can do that, then it will help you. And you can arm yourselves with this sword as we come into chapter four. So he says, it is better for, if the will of God be so that you suffer for well doing, for evil doing. Verse 18, for Christ also has suffered for sins. Now, let me give you the thought flow here through these verses, which can be a little bit tricky to follow. <clears throat> Christ has already suffered for sins. And just like Christ suffered for sins, was put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the spirit, just, just like that. Remember Noah. He says to these, these believers um, now scattered aboard uh, throughout Pontius and Galatia and Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia. He says, look, believers, you know, you're, you're finding these times difficult. You're finding the way hard. Can you think of a time in history where the way was hard? Can you think of a time where it was, it was so evil and it was so dark that the imagination of men was just evil continually? And they think back through their Old Testament. They knew their Old Testament. Peter's always quoting the Old Testament. He's done it already in our passage this evening. I think back. When, when was it darkest in human history? If we think it's dark now under Nero and under the suffering of the, uh, the, the, the Roman Empire, if we think it's dark now, when has it been dark like that before? He says, just like Christ was put to death in the flesh, but quickened in the spirit, in the same way, Noah, in the days of Noah, he prepared an ark. And because of the long suffering of God, the fact that God wants to be patient and, and allow people uh, to, to be presented with truth that should have made them re react in repentance, Noah uh, suffered as well. And he went through uh, the, the, the judgment of God through the ark, through water. And just like Noah, he said, when you got saved and baptized, you were basically agreeing with this, this verdict of history. That just like Christ was put to death in the flesh and was quickened uh, by the spirit. And just like Noah and, and believers, countless believers down the centuries in, in difficult times went through difficulties. You said this at your baptism, says Peter. Uh, we come to this a little bit later in verse 21. You, you said there that you were, you were signing up for this. You were signing up for the fact that you, you, were, you, were, you were dying to your old life. And you were risen again to a new life. And you were basically signing up when you, when you got saved and, you, and you, were, you were baptized. You were signing up for this. You see, how, you see how the thought flow goes here. Eventually you get to verse 22, where you get to sort of the end of the chiasm, if you like. Uh, it's an, a, a, an inversion here of thought. And he says, Christ has gone into heaven and is sat on the right hand of God. This is the end. Noah came through. You said by dying and by raising again your, 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 your burial in baptism and your resurrection, you said that it was, it, you didn't just go under the water, you weren't just immersed in water, but you came up again. And you came up again because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and he's now, he says to these believers, you've got you've to have eternity stamped on your eyeballs. You've got to see the big picture. And so I want you to see that thought flow as we go through this section here, because that framework of thought, I think, is what Peter is trying to put across. He's trying to give these believers encouragement that they're not alone. Christ has suffered for sins. And of course, a big part of that idea is that they shouldn't be suffering for sins. They should be suffering if anything for good because Christ has once suffered for sins. But the bigger idea here is that they should be encouraged because there have been dark days in the past. It was dark when Christ was put to death in the flesh. It was dark when Noah prepared the ark and we basically accepted it was going to be dark when we when we accepted Christ and we were baptized because we recognized that there was a death and a resurrection involved with that dark yes 
but darkness followed by uh, resurrection. There is glory on ahead. Now, with that, those thoughts in mind, let's have a little closer look at some of these uh, verses, uh, keeping an eye on the time. For Christ also has once suffered for sins. How wonderful this is. Once suffered, sufficient and final. Once suffered. It, it is right, I think, to translate this here, suffered. It can be translated uh, died. But Peter's focus is on the suffering, the experience of dying, if you like. And Christ has been there. He has done that and he did it. You think it's hard, he says to these believers, you think it's hard suffering for doing, for doing, for doing the right things. Christ once suffered, the just for the unjust. Christ suffered for doing wrong things that he had not done. You think it's hard suffering, says Peter, to these believers for suffering for doing right things. Christ suffered for doing wrong things that he hadn't even done. So Christ's suffering uh, uh, was, was, was far more uh, incredible than what God is expecting of you. The will of God in Christ being put to the death in the flesh is far more incredible than what God is expecting of you. So it is better that we suffer for well-doing. Why did Christ do this? Why did the just one, the righteous one, suffering for righteousness, why did the right one die for the unright ones? Then he might bring us to God. Not so much bring us to heaven, not so much give us a bed of roses, but bring us into an intimate relationship with himself. How wonderful it is to hear Peter saying this. You remember the Lord Jesus asked Peter, who, who do you say that I am? Christ, says Peter. You're the Christ. You're the anointed one. And then when the Lord Jesus started to speak to Peter about the fact that he was going to have to suffer. When, when the Lord Jesus started to Peter, speak to Peter about the fact he was going to have to be put to death in the flesh, Peter would have none of it. But he says, no, it's true. This is the way. This is the way that Old Testament saints have gone. This is the way that Christ has gone. And this is the way that effectively you, you agreed with the answer of a good conscience. You, you, you assented to this in your baptism. How lovely to see Peter here encouraging those believers. Christ did indeed suffer, being put to death in the spirit. Now, of course, we know that the Lord Jesus, he uh he he's he had the power to lay his life down he had the power to take it again but peter here as he did in acts he puts the moral responsibility on mankind being put to death by the spirit uh, put put to death in the flesh but quickened by the spirit and so christ died he was buried but he rose again and so the end of the story is a wonderful end of the story by which also he went and preached in the spirits of prison. Now, it's definitely true. Uh, we have to ask ourselves here, uh, well, which, which spirit and, 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 and who went into prison and when did he go into, into prison and what are the spirits? And, and we have to ask all those questions, which we really don't have uh, space this evening to, to get into much detail. Let me just give you some comments on this um, as to what I think this means. And I, I don't think it really significantly upsets our understanding of the, of the flow of thought that we presented this evening. Now, if you don't agree with the flow of thought that I presented, well, then, uh, well, then that, that's a separate conversation. But if you agree with the flow of thought, then the conclusions we come to about this tricky verse, I don't think they really upset the flow of thought. It is definitely true, isn't it? Because Peter says in, in chapter 1, verse 11, that the spirit of Christ, he says in chapter one, verse 11, the spirit of Christ was in them, speaking about the Old Testament prophets. So it is definitely a true statement to make, whether you see that uh, as, as being present in verse 19 or not, is, is up for debate. But it's definitely a true statement to make that Christ, the spirit of Christ, was active in the days of Noah. And that might be what Peter is referring to do, to, to, to hear. That is um, very, I, I find that very easy to, to see in the text. I have no problem with that. I don't feel like I have to extend the text 
and I don't feel like I am uh, uh, falling short of what the text is saying, if, if that is what we believe it to be. So in other words, if that is our view, then what it means is that Christ, uh, as it with the Old Testament prophets, reference chapter one, verse 11, was speaking through people like Isaiah, so he was speaking in Noah's day as well. And so those that were disobedient, verse 20, when once a lock suffering of God, uh, they're now, verse 19, in prison. Uh, those who were disobedient were disobedient in response to the uh, spirit of Christ that was active in the days of Noah. I don't think that falls short of the, uh, the text. I don't think it's overextending it either. However, it may also be true um, that owing to the unseen spiritual world that scripture occasionally draws the curtains back on, that what Peter is referring to here is a declaration that was made after Christ's death. Um, I, I don't have any major issues with that either. There is a spirit world, there is an unseen world, and certainly the early church fathers um, would, would read it that way. They believe that Peter was speaking uh, about a, uh, a movement by Christ to, to make a declaration of what had been achieved at Calvary to those spirits in prison who were disobedient in Noah's day. You kind of need to understand uh, the, 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 the setting of, of Genesis 6, the, the darkness, the depravity there that was going on. Uh, I see space in the text for that as well. Uh, but I feel um, that I might be overextending it a little bit uh, without, without some additional sources, without some additional first century texts that help us to see it that way. As I say, which however way you take it, and in my mind, some of these thoughts are actually not mutually exclusive. I think we can have our cake and eat it. Um, but however you see it, I don't think uh, that it should upset the, the flow of thought that we have presented this evening. These believers were in difficulty. They needed encouragement. They felt the days were dark. And Peter says to them, Christ has suffered. He's been there. He's, he's, he's done that. I say that reverently. And he had victory. Noah, he uh, suffered reproach as well on grounds of God's, God's long-suffering nature. And yet he came through as well. And the like figure, he says, verse 22, he says, mind you, he says only eight souls in verse 20, only eight souls were saved by water. He, he says, look, I'm writing to strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. You think it's bad now? Now, he says in Noah's day, only eight souls were saved. Only eight souls responded to the spirit uh, that quickened uh, Christ from the dead. You think it's bad now, says Peter? There were just eight souls in that day. It was dark then. Oh, it was dark when Noah was alive. And he said, the like figure, verse 21, whereunto even baptism does also now save us. Peter saw baptism and salvation as one and the same thing. As far as he was concerned, there was no, never, ever any idea of an unbaptized believer. And Peter says to us, uh, you, your, your baptism, you, you basically agreed with God about all this. You, 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 you saw things how God saw it, that Christ died and yet was risen again, that Noah went through the flood and yet he came through and he was saved uh, through the water. And so uh, baptism is the same mind you he says in brackets in my uh, king james here not the putting away of the filth of the flesh we don't believe here that no that, that our baptism actually saves us it's an outward declaration of an inward reality and the reality is this that uh, christ has uh, has gained a, a a victory over over death he has been quickened by the spirit and in that same way, Noah gained a victory as well uh, through the water. You know, Noah didn't get to benefit from salvation without building an ark. And you and I shouldn't, but we can by the grace of God, but we shouldn't be enjoying the benefits of salvation without baptism. And so if you're not baptized tonight, now, I don't think Peter's necessarily talking about people who weren't baptized, although he could have been. And he might have unsettled people who thought, yeah, I actually haven't 
I haven't actually declared the, uh, the reason of the hope that is within me through my public baptism. And so we can apply it perhaps like that tonight. You know, as we've said, Noah didn't get to benefit from salvation without building an ark. Can I say kindly to those of you that are not baptized, but you're saved? What are you doing benefiting from God's salvation without declaring and agreeing with God that this is what you are called to? You are called to a life of, of, of dying, but there's glory uh, up ahead. And just like your baptism, you died and rose again with Christ. And there can be suffering as a result of that. There can be suffering when you declare your baptism publicly, just in that same way. Just in that same way, he says, uh, so Noah uh, was also, uh, also experienced the grace of God uh, in his life. So if baptism doesn't save us. It's not the putting away of the filth of flesh, but the answer of a good conscience towards God. If you're not baptized tonight, there's something wrong. There's some, some discontinuity between what you say you believe in the Bible about the fact that you're done with this world and you're and you're, you're you're risen again with Christ and what you're actually willing to publicly declare. If you've got concerns about that, speak to somebody who uh, who you trust. They can help you. And if you're worried about the suffering that comes with baptism, again, speak to somebody about that. Don't don't hold that in. Have a conversation. And we're going to see in a moment that the Christian family is there for you. We're going to see that just now as we move into chapter four. So thinking then holistically, suffering happily, behaving humbly and thinking holistically, we need to see the big picture. And mind you, doesn't Peter just give us a big picture here? All the way back to Noah, as far back as, as Calvary as well, and into our present, where we are to be living out the truth of baptism on a daily basis uh, uh, in our Christian lives. We now come to chapter four and verse one, and you'll be pleased to know I've only got about 10 minutes worth of material here. Uh, chapter three is the dense section um, in my in my um, in, in my view. So uh, don't don't worry. Uh, we, we shan't be spending quite so long on this section here. You remember the title we wrote over these first six verses was that Peter is expecting he, us here to change intentionally. Intentionally, we, we need to do this with intention and needs to be change verse one of chapter four for as much then taking us back really this is the end of the chiasm and from verse 18 uh christ suffering in the flesh uh our um uh, uh, and so then he comes to chapter four verse one for as much then as christ has suffered for us in the flesh arm yourselves we are to weaponize our minds we are to arm our minds ready intentionally with this idea that that Christ has suffered in the flesh and if that is the case then it allows me to adopt a mindset which detaches my present from my past and connects my present with my future you see you see what happens when you get in the balcony you see what happens when the spirit of God when you yield to the spirit of God and he takes you to the balcony and shows you the big picture if you arm yourselves with that mind, if you internalize the truth of Christ's suffering, and this is where I need to be a little bit careful because I don't really know much, and you might not either, about these next few verses. But if we are willing to do that, and if we are, are, are uh, arming ourselves in that way, then we are able to detach ourselves from our past. Peter says, he that has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so you're ceasing from that pattern of sin in your life and we're able to connect our present with our future. That is the big, the big idea, I think, here in these verses. Arm, your, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. This is intentional. It starts in the mind. Now, our hearts are sanctified. We've given God the right place. But the battle right now, and probably always has been, but we're very conscious of it right now, especially in the West, where the battle really isn't, isn't significantly uh, in being suffering uh, outwardly and suffering uh, even ridicule, though there is some of that in the West, but the battle is in the mind. And I will struggle as a Christian 
if it is, I haven't sanctified the Lord God of my heart. And if I'm not using scripture to arm my mind, this is so important. I love the fact that the word of God is just so, so up to date. It speaks about the mind. It speaks about how I should think mentally. It's not just something that is all effervescent and spiritual uh, that can't connect to, to us as humans. We do suffer in the flesh. But since we suffer in the flesh, we should cease from sin. And we can do that because we have armed ourselves with that mind. So keep that thought uh, in your mind. Hold that thought as we go forward. He says in verse two that he is that he uh, no longer should live the rest of his time. Now, he's going to say in verse seven, but the end of all things is at hand. We don't have much time. He'll talk about redeeming the time in his second epistle. And um, he says in, in verse three, the time past of our life may suffice us. We've we've been there. We've done that. We've done the sin of the Gentiles. We've we've uh, lived to the will of the Gentiles. Now it's time to uh, live verse two to the will of God. I'm giving you the thought here rather than a verse by verse exposition now this is where it becomes a little bit difficult for me because i don't really know much about these specific sins now it might be that some of you here tonight you do know something about these specific sins and your your past which if you don't arm yourselves with this mind can define your present but it might be that your past knows something of these things and it might be that as you cease from doing these things there are six things mentioned here it might be as you do these things, uh, as you cease from doing these things, that you suffer. Look what, 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 what's spoken of. Um, verse four, you suffer because they speak evil of you. They think it's strange that you run not with them and they speak evil of you. If you're not there at the party, if you're not present, if there's a vacant space at the uh, the 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 pub crawl or the or, or the, uh, the 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 riotous party that that, that someone's organised. If you're not there, you may suffer as a result. And Peter was aware. I'm sure we can infer that from the specific sins that he selects here. We can infer that he knew that what these believers were going through was very very difficult. These are all very public kinds of sins: sensuality passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. These are very, these are very gregarious kinds of sins. Sins where an exhibition is made of oneself and others. And I think Peter was aware that this was the culture and the climate that these believers were in. And so it was very difficult for them. And although I have struggled with sin, and as you get older as a Christian, you just realize just how much the grace of God is necessary in your life to redeem you from sin. But perhaps more in the sense of Romans 6 than here. For some of you, you might have to go home to homes where you will be ridiculed. And they will think it's strange, verse 4, that you run not with them to the same excess of riot. And you might have to suffer in the flesh. These people probably had been cut off from their families and they were reviled. And when they worked, went into work on a Monday morning and they were asked, well, where were you at the party at the weekend? They would have had to suffer in the flesh. I do think that is a, a way of reading this passage uh, that is uh, specifically interpreting what Peter is saying in the context of these specific sins. There, there are various sins that he could have mentioned here. They're all very uh, kind of exhibitional types of sins. And it can be difficult for you. But he says, look, verse five, they'll give an account to him that is ready to judge the quick and the dead. They will give an account uh, of this. You see, you and I have gone from being hell-bound sinners to a son of God. And so you might say to me, Lloyd, it's all very well for you to talk about this tonight. It's about suffering happily, behaving humbly, thinking big picture. But you don't understand. It's tough for me. And I would say to you, you're absolutely right. I don't know what, I don't know what you're going through. But read on. Because it's not, it's not all negatives. There are six negatives here, but there are at least six positives. 
So if it is that you are Christian and you're suffering in the flesh uh, because of your choice not to engage in these things, look what he says uh, in verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Be ye therefore sober. I don't want you to be this. I don't want you to do these things. I don't want you to walk in the will of the Gentiles. I want you to walk in the will of God. And the first thing he says is be sober. Have self-control. Have self-control. This is a fruit of the spirit. Having the ability to say no. Having the ability to say no. Have a right mind. Watch unto prayer. Be therefore sober, mind, sober having self-control and watch unto prayer. Have a clear mind. Arm your mind with that thought back in verse one. Have a clear mind that you might think, uh, think uh, right and do the right thing. Uh, pray, he says, in verse seven as well. And then verse eight, he says, above all things, have fervent. Now, this is, the, this is the real crux of things. Above all things. Yes, self-control. Yes, a clear mind without lacking judgment. Prayer, but above all things, have fervent love. And so if you are struggling and if you are suffering in the flesh, and to a certain extent, we can apply it at a very high level and say, well, we all suffer for having to say no to sin. You can apply it like that if you want. It's a little bit unhinged from the text, but we can apply it like that. The important thing is that above all, we have fervent love, fervent love, fervent love. Now, I can't really press this any more than perhaps anyone else could in this meeting tonight, because I think we all struggle with fervent love. We know we have to love one another, but I'm to love you earnestly. I'm to love you fervently. And that's such a challenge, isn't it? See, we're so focused on perhaps the, the things we can't do, and yet God is calling us to fervent love. And so if you do struggle, I'm going to love you. I'm going to love you earnestly. And if you're suffering in the flesh, there's love here, here for you. And so the love that you might not be getting and the ridicule that you are getting and the shame and the reproach that you're experiencing out there, here in the Christian family, is fervent love. And I'm going to love you. And, you and, and what you don't get out there here, we can provide love to you. What's more, love will cover sin in this specific context. I think what it means is the sin may sometimes be may, may be the result of the situation, the pressure that you're in. It's not it's not it's the, we can't take this verse out of the context. But if there is a situation where you do sin, you don't cease from sin. Because you're worried about suffering in the flesh. He says, I'm not going to publicize that. I'm not going to maliciously talk to my fellow brethren about your sin. As one commentator said, when a Christian busies himself in advertising the sins of other Christians, he thereby advertises his own carnal condition. I've heard that before. I'm sure you have. But love covers a multitude of sins. Next, use hospitality one to another. So because, I, because we're all arming ourselves with this mind and we're having fervent love, um, we, are to, uh, we are to use hospitality. You might, not have, you might not have company out there. People out there might ridicule you, but come into my home. Come into my home. Spill your juice on my carpet. Uh, leave all the plates at the, at the, at the dish, at the side, side of, the, of the sink. doesn't matter. I'm going to do it without grudging. I'm going to open up my home. And if you happen to be a believer in Peter's day, you will have wanted this kind of hospitality because you might not be, you might have been running from something and you needed to be, have those doors open. And then finally, in verses 10 to 11, he calls them to serve. Self-control, clear mind, prayer, earnest love, hospitality and serving. And we will have to leave it there. Serving as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. It may be tough out there. And it might get tough in days to come here in this country. But hopefully, the Christian assembly, the Christian home, will be an oasis for us to enjoy one another's love, 
to enjoy prayer, to find models of self-control, to find hospitality, and through serving one another, perhaps we can just take the pain and the toil a little bit out of uh, this uh, land in which this this place in which we are sojourning uh, as as believers, and so uh, not only uh, change change uh, the, our our Christian practice intentionally, but give graciously. What a wonderful exhortation as we close our session this evening to think about giving. It's the last thing you think about when you're suffering. It's the last thing you think about when you're going through difficulties. But the scriptural, the scriptural mindset is stop focusing on yourself. Love others. Give to others as good stewards of the grace of God. Shall we just close in prayer?